the greatest sermon ever preached. When I think about that, just that statement, I think of some great sermons that I'm aware of that have been preached in the history of the New Testament church. Wonderful, greatly blessed sermons have been preached. The Holy Spirit has been poured out, multitudes converted right on the spot upon the preaching of these sermons. I think of two that come to my mind right away. Probably the same one that comes to your mind is the greatest sermon ever preached in North America. It was preached on July 8, 1741. That's almost, two, or almost 300 years ago. The preacher was Jonathan Edwards, preached in Enfield, Connecticut. When he preached Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God from Deuteronomy, History attests that grown men gripped the pew and cried before even Edwards finished his sermon. Some of them shrieked, Mr. Edwards, have mercy. Others cried out, what must I do to be saved? Hundreds were converted right on the spot, and it wasn't just an emotional thing. They stuck. But uh, more than 100 years before Edwards preached his famous sermon, a man by the name of John Livingston preached in Schatz, Scotland, near Glasgow. In June of 1630, thousands had gathered, as, as they would do back then and in many other places, for what they called a communal season, giving of communion, and several congregations would come together. The appointed preacher for that occasion was not able to speak. John Livingston, no relation to David Livingston, who would come more than a century later, was just 27 years of age, he was drafted. He almost bolted, he almost disappeared. He was so reluctant to preach. But finally the Lord gave him the courage. He preached from Ezekiel chapter 37. And you think I preach long when I go 45 minutes. He preached for an hour and a half and he was just getting warmed up. And after he preached for an hour and a half, it started raining and the people were out in the fields, and they started putting their hoods and wrapping with their cloaks because of the rain. But just as that heavy downpour occurred, there was a simultaneous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and 500 people were converted right on the spot. And decades later, traced their conversion to that moment, that, that occasion. There have been some great sermons preached, folks. And I hope we don't disparage preaching. In a lot of circles, preaching has been disparaged. There is no substitute for the authoritative, spirit-filled preaching of the Word of God. No substitute for it. Thank God for other mediums. Thank God for music like we have here. Thank God for dramas that can get the gospel across. I'm not against that. But there is absolutely no substitute for the authoritative proclamation of the Word of God. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount concludes with a statement about that, that Jesus spoke not like the scribes, but He spoke with authority, and that caused people to be startled. I'd rather people be startled than just bored. But the greatest sermon ever preached was not in recent history. It was almost 2,000 years ago. It was preached on a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The speaker was a peasant rabbi wearing a homespun robe. Interestingly enough, in distinction to the 
sermons I just described and mentioned, alluded to, we do not read that there was anyone converted right on the spot. But when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, it became part of the inspired canon of Scripture, and millions since then have been smitten with conviction and regenerated as they have read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And many sermons have been preached from it. No doubt it is the greatest sermon ever preached. And it keeps on preaching because it's inspired. Jesus spoke these words, just a little bit of background. He spoke these words in the early part of his ministry, his first ministry tour of Galilee. Shortly after choosing his disciples, and the majority of his disciples were from Galilee. It's important to remember that. Because some of the things he says in the Beatitudes that we're about to get into are really for the benefit of these disciples who had left all to follow him. At his call, they just forsook everything. They hung on every word that proceeded from his mouth. Especially did they listen with rapt attention to this sermon. You could call this sermon the magnum opus of the Master. His defining message, His greatest work. The Sermon on the Mount is the first sermon recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And it wasn't just for the Jews, though Matthew is specifically the Gospel to the Jews. I say without any hesitation, the Sermon on the Mount is for us today. It's not just for Jewish believers. It's not for believers belonging to some future period or dispensation in God's prophetic plan. Some people have dispensationalized away the Sermon on the Mount, and they're the losers for it. Jesus was directing His words to His disciples, as I said, who had left all to follow Him, but His sermon was also witnessed by the multitudes, as you see in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, He went up into a mountain. And when He was set, when He was seated, His disciples came unto Him. Why did His disciples need to hear this sermon? Why do we need to study it again? Let me give you three reasons. I hope you remember this. I hope you jot it down. Why do we need to study the Sermon on the Mount? First of all, the Sermon on the Mount challenges our preconceptions about the Bible. Nothing is more dangerous than approaching God's Word with our own ideas, importing our own interpretations and prejudices. Did you know that you can virtually prove anything from the Bible? I mean, it's just like somewhere you'll find a doctor who will tell you what you want to hear. Somewhere in the Bible you'll find a verse that seems to say what you want it to say. That's very dangerous. And so the Holy Spirit, who is the author of this book, He just loves to confound the conventional wisdom of the world about it. And the teaching of Jesus Christ is counterintuitive. He did not hesitate to defy the status quo. He perplexed people. He confounded people. He startled his hearers. He turned tradition upside down. He didn't hesitate to offer sacred cows. He spoke in paradoxes as well as parables. As we'll see in the next few weeks, He taught, in effect, 
The way up is down. The way to gain is to give. The way to live is to die. The way to reign is to suffer. He that loseth his life for my sake of the gospels, the same shall save it. Those words fell on the ears of people that were startled by them. Why do we need to study the Sermon on the Mount? Because it challenges our preconceptions about the Bible. So I hope you'll be honest enough and you'll lay them aside. You'll say, Lord, teach me. If you say it, I'm going to believe it. I don't care what I believed up to this point. Number two, the Sermon on the Mount corrects our mistaken notions about the relationship between law and grace. You've heard me say it so many times before, and even in recent months as we studied together again, uh, the way of the Master, the witnessing program, law and grace still work together, amen? Law to the proud, grace to the humble. By the law is the knowledge of sin. For many, many years, I, I thought the law was an enemy of grace, the way my, I heard preachers preach about it, I, that's the only conclusion I could have come to. But the law is perfect. The law is still God's instrument to bring conviction of sin. And the law and grace work together. Now it's possible to go to an extreme with either. And that's where the Sermon on the Mount is so valuable. Some people emphasize the law so much as they turn the gospel of Jesus Christ with all of its glorious liberty, they turn it into little more than a collection of moral maxims. It's not that. Others on the other extreme emphasize grace at the expense of law, and so they make grace a license for sin. That's known in theological circles as antinomianism, against law. These are people who forget that Jesus said in John 14, verse 30, If ye love me, keep my commandments. It's not hard to just switch that and look at the other side of the coin. If you don't keep my commandments, you don't really love me. May I say this? Love is not a rule. Love is a motive. The rule is the Word of God. A lot of people are saying, oh, it doesn't really matter about doing, keeping this and keeping that. Just, just love Jesus. All that matters. I remember a person coming to me and came in on and said, ah, we, all we believe in is love and the Holy Spirit. And they put on this smile. They wouldn't know the Holy Spirit if he bit them. They don't want to regard the Word of God. The third reason we need to study the Sermon on the Mount today, especially today, is more than any other part of the Bible, Christ's Sermon on the Mount shows us our absolute need and our dependence to be born again and to receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit when we're born again. We are born from above. I say that because as you read through this Sermon on the Mount, all three chapters, you'll see some sky-high demands that Jesus gives that cannot be fulfilled unless we're born again. Just a cursory view. I don't have time to mention many. He says, love your enemies. Nobody had ever heard that. That was counterintuitive. Don't get angry with your brother. Don't resist evil. Turn the other cheek. That expression comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect, just like your Father is in heaven is perfect. 
Are you kidding me? How in the world can you do that? How in the world can I do that? I'll tell you, the only way is to be born again, have our hearts changed and receive the Holy Spirit. So all that is by way of introduction to the series. I hope that gets you thinking and whets your appetite to study this great inspired sermon. But the greatest sermon ever preached begins with the greatest blessings ever pronounced, known as the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And that's what we've come to today. Let's read them together, shall we? Matthew 5, verse 1. I'll let you read along silently as I read aloud. And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up into a mountain, and when he was set, when he was seated, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. This is the first words that came out of Jesus' mouth when he got seated on the mountaintop, started with his sermon. They describe the blessedness, these verses, of the one who exhibits the characteristics set forth here that can only come about by being a partaker of God's nature through Jesus Christ. Would you listen? The Beatitudes is not a menu of options. The Beatitudes are a catalog of traits that are essential characteristics of the true child of God. Appreciate what Dr. John Vaughn said, the former pastor of Faith Baptist Church in Taylor, South Carolina. Great man. He said this, the Beatitudes are attitudes that ought to be in the believer's life. Beatitudes are attitudes that ought to be in the believer's life. These are transformational attitudes. These are foundational attitudes. It's interesting that right before Jesus preached this sermon, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 17, I think you can do that maybe without even turning the page. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near. This, he said that just hours, if not days, before he preached this message. Then he starts with this sermon on the Beatitudes. After saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he gives a description of the person who has repented with the resultant lifestyle transformations. And so the man or the woman who possesses these essential characteristics cataloged here in the Beatitudes is blessed indeed. They are happy. They are to be envied. They are especially favored by God. And here I need to stop and, and offer an, a sacred cow myself and smash a pet theory. 
There is a difference between happiness and joy. There really is. There are a lot of people out there that think they are entitled to be happy. God wants them happy, so whatever it takes, they're going to do it. And they rationalize all kinds of sinful decisions because of that. And sadly, some preachers have contributed to their demise. The late modernist preacher Robert Schuller, out in California, pastored the Garden or the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California, a rank modernist. But he pioneered televangelism of sorts. He wrote a book entitled, uh, he wrote a book on the Beatitudes entitled The Be Happy Attitudes. And he just muddied the waters about the difference between happiness and joy. True happiness is the byproduct of obedience. Make no mistake about it. It is independent of circumstances, and all we have to read is the Paul's epistle to the Philippians to find that out. They were, he was in prison when he wrote it. They were suffering dire affliction and deep poverty, and yet they had great joy, as Paul referred to that. Joy is independent of the circumstances. Did you know that the word for happy is an Anglo-Saxon word, hap, which means chance. We talk about happenstance, hap, happenstance. So thus, to be happy is something temporal. It's something insecure. But joy transcends the temporal and the natural. Make no mistake about it. Now, there are steps to this blessedness that we're, looking, we're examining over the next few weeks. So the order of these Beatitudes is very significant. Please, what we're talking about today is absolutely foundational. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you don't have that down, no use going on to the others. There's no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. All the other characteristics, godly sorrow, mourning over sin, meekness, seeking after righteousness, showing mercy, maintaining purity of heart, being a peacemaker, enduring persecution, all of those virtues are simply a result of the first one, being poor in spirit. So I say all that, and I've, I've spent a long time on introduction intentionally. Let's examine our hearts this morning, make sure that we have the right foundation. The one thing I do not want to happen as we start a new series is, I do not want this to be just filling a book with facts. I don't want this to just be an academic exercise that causes you to be puffed up with knowledge. I want God to work on our hearts. So, are we ready? Well, let's begin. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And what is the blessing associated, promised to those who meet this condition? Well, we'll just cover the first point today. That'll be as far as we'll get. Let's talk about the essence of true humility. The essence of true humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, poverty of spirit. The word for poor in the Greek here is tokos. 
It's from a verb. The root verb means to shrink, to cower, to cringe. Interestingly enough, it is not the usual word for poor in the Bible, but it is one that implies complete dependence upon others for sustenance. Kind of like Lazarus, you know, at the gate of the rich man. He was dependent on the crumbs that fell from his table. By the way, Jesus is not talking about literal poverty here. And a lot of people are confused on this point. There's this monkish idea about the vow of poverty, voluntary poverty. That's not what's in view here. And I need to say that because currently there's this popular woke mentality which makes everybody a victim. And there's a, this hegemony where you've got to divide, you have to have class warfare. And one class is the dominating class, and the other class is being exploited. And it's easy to just think in those terms, as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, nothing could be more counterproductive. Nowhere in the Bible is poverty itself exalted as a good thing. Yes, many of God's choicest children were poor in material things. But it is not a sin to be rich. Many of the choicest believers in the Bible were rich, and they didn't compromise to be that way. Abraham was rich. Job was rich. He lost it for a while. God gave him twice as much as he had before. Barnabas in the New Testament, rich, a man of means. Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his tomb for Jesus' burial, a rich man. Poverty does not guarantee spirituality. There are some verses in the Bible directed to the poor because of the temptations poor people have. What God depends is dependence upon riches. Riches make to themselves wings and just fly away. Jesus is talking about poverty of spirit here, not literal poverty. And poverty of spirit refers to a man's attitude toward himself. This is spiritual bankruptcy. It is true humility. Every single one of us, if we haven't come to this place already, we must come to the place where we see that our soul is spiritually bankrupt without God and the righteousness that He demands, as we read in chapter 5, verse 20. What is the essence of true humility? What does it boil down to in its distilled ingredients? Well, three things. I hope you'll remember these today. They're on the outline. What is the essence of true humility? Spiritual poverty. Number one, it is the absence of self-reliance. The absence of self-reliance. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, just jot this down. We won't turn to this verse. We will be turning to some others very soon. Jeremiah 10, verse 23, the prophet cries out, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. How this just flies in the face of, of the humanistic mindset of our day that 
that says that man can chart his own course, if he's given the right encouragement and opportunities, what we hear uh, on graduation night at most commencement exercises, even at Christian schools, this sounds so different from that. Shoot for the moon, you can do it. Believe in yourself, you can do it. Jesus says something utterly different here. Self-reliance is a popular virtue in our culture, especially in American culture. As Americans, we pride ourselves in being sturdy and self-reliant. We pride ourselves in what you'll read even in the history books of American history is our rugged individualism. Now, not everything about that is bad. We do need to realize that there's something to be said for accepting responsibility for our actions. The Bible teaches that. The sinner is accountable to God. He's responsible to God for his actions. But to go beyond that, listen carefully, to go beyond that and to say in the words of a famous poem by William Cullen Bryant, I think it was, it ends this way, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And people read that and think, well, that sounds great. No, that's wicked. That flies in the face of the Word of God. You are not the master of your fate. You are not the captain of your soul. And to say that and to think that is pride of the most abominable kind. Self-reliance as it pertains to the soul is false religion. We are not self-made Christians. If we're Christians at all, we are God-made. Won't be long and we'll be having Thanksgiving, my favorite holiday of the year. I love Thanksgiving. And our children in K-5, if nobody else beats them to it, will get up and say, the old 100, Psalm 100. I love it. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. And what are the very next words in verse 3 of Psalm 100? Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are not self-made. We can no more make ourselves anew spiritually than we could cause ourselves to be formed in the womb the first time. We must be born again. And that Greek word for again is the word anathen, which means also born from above. Born of the Spirit. And Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, a very religious man, the leading Pharisee of the day, when he said that. And he said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I have no desire to insult you this morning or just be sensational, but I must tell you, without showing any disrespect for your parents at all, without meaning that, that you were born wrong the first time. You were born in sin. If you see your true condition, you'll have to say with David as he cried out in Psalm 51, verse 5, that great penitential psalm, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It wasn't, it wasn't sin for his mother to conceive him, but in sin she did because he inherited a sinful nature. You and I cannot rely upon our natural birth. 
The whole world has been abuzz in the last couple of weeks with the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest ruling British monarch in history. And there's been a whole lot of discussion publicly whether or not she was a true child of God. I'm not going to pass judgment. She has been eulogized more than probably anyone else will be in this century. She came from royalty. She conducted herself in a very queenly way. She was a queen of a lady. But I'm here to remind you this morning that unless Queen Elizabeth II was born from above and truly saw her sinfulness and received Jesus Christ as her Savior and not just her exemplar, which she readily acknowledged, the honor and wealth that she enjoyed in this lifetime is all she's going to get. Thirdly, self-reliance is the enemy of faith. Self-reliance is the enemy of faith. Someone has wisely said, I don't know who it was who to attribute this to, or I would, I'd, I'd give a name. A man's religion is his reliance, or a man's reliance is his religion. You may say you're irreligious, but you know you do have a religion. Whatever you're relying on is your religion. Either you are trusting yourself when it comes to your hope of heaven and trying to gain God's favor, or you're trusting in Jesus Christ and His shed blood, His finished work. The Bible says without mincing words, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And may I remind you this morning that apart from Jesus Christ, every single person in this world, yourself, myself included, is spiritually destitute, regardless of our background, regardless of our education, our intelligence, our status, our accomplishments, our talents, our religious knowledge. Knowledge. In fact, Paul, who had all those things, a brilliant man, Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, taught at the feet of Gamaliel, he said, all those things I counted, but dung. Garbage, refuse. That's saying a lot, folks. All that high-bred stuff, dung. Have you come to that place of spiritual bankruptcy? Pride and reliance are the first things that must go if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. If we would become children of God. There must be an absence of self-reliance. Secondly, there must be an acceptance of God's assessment of ourselves. There must be an acceptance of God's assessment of ourselves. And how does He see us? He sees us all as sinners. There's none righteous, no, not the one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But when we repent of our sin and trust in the finished work, of atonement provided by His Son, guess what happens? We are accepted in the Beloved. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. We are complete in Him. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But when we are in Him, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. 
This understanding of God's assessment of ourselves will produce certain positive results in our attitudes and behavior, and these are things that are readily set out there a lot. So I'm going to kind of go quickly through these things, not apologizing for saying them, but there are a whole lot of other people emphasizing this. This is pretty popular stuff, but it's not wrong. If we understand God's assessment of ourselves, then we will make it our duty to know ourselves, first of all. Know our strengths, know our weaknesses, know our natural abilities, know our spiritual gifts, know our desires, our ambitions, our basic temperaments. But be careful with that temperament stuff. There's been a whole lot of writing out there about that, and it, it excuses us for a certain basic temperament. And um, we can't just say, I'm, well, sorry, I'm a choleric, I can't help it. But we do need to know our own selves. We need to be honest about ourselves. This is not pride. This is true wisdom. Secondly, we need to accept oneself. God made you the way He did physically. He made you with a basic personality that you have. And young people especially need to hear this that are so peer conscious. If you say, I hate my looks... You're not really being humble, you're being proud. Because you're saying, in effect, are you listening, I deserve to look differently. And that's casting an aspersion on God who made you. Others deny what they really are, and they embark upon a life of pretending. They live in a dream world, they live in a fantasy, fantasy world, and this is so sad because Often this has terrible consequences, emotionally and spiritually, I mean, suicide, depression, you name it. The fantasy world. You need to accept yourself the way God made you. Thirdly, you need to be yourself to the glory of God. Be yourself to the glory of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, when I'm weak, then am I strong. He didn't try to hide the fact that he was weak. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He wasn't what he was by pedigree, though he listed all those things. He said, I count them but dung, but I am what I am by the grace of God. And could I say this, and this needs to be said and heard far and wide in Christian circles. Please don't try to be somebody else. Don't imitate or envy somebody else. God didn't intend for you to be a carbon copy of anybody. And I say that as a twin. We've got twins right here on my left that just joined the church. I guarantee you they'd be the first to tell you my sister ain't anything like me. And although everybody else confused Bill and me, I thought he was terribly different from me. God, who made no two snowflakes alike, threw away the mold when he made you. And did you know that the only way you can become a true individual is by following Jesus and taking up your cross? 
And when you do that, you're not mimicking anybody else. That's the only way to become a true individual. But Satan has people snowed, Satan has people blinded, and he gets them to think, if I can just throw off all the restraint of old-fashioned fundamentalism and do what I want to do, I'll be free. Oh, no. You'll have a hook in your nose, and you'll be conformed to this world, and you'll be a slave. sad when people don't accept the way God made them, are not willing to be themselves to the glory of God, and they try to be somebody else. There's a fellow that stands out in my mind when I think of this. When I went to Bible college, he was from my hometown. He was one year behind me, but he went to the same Bible college. He was in my church growing up. He became known as the teen preacher boy. He would go speak at youth rallies as a 15 and 16-year-old. But because his dad worked where my dad worked, at the ministry of the Sword of the Lord, the late Dr. John R. Rice, some of you know who I'm talking about, but with the passing of time, more and more people have no idea who Dr. John R. Rice was. Well-known preacher, editor, writer, evangelist. But Dr. Rice was very well known at this time, especially in Tennessee, where this took place. And so this teen preacher boy would get up and he would mimic Dr. Rice. And he'd pull his glasses down and look like this. And he'd affect Dr. Rice's tone of voice. And some of us who knew what he was doing and were aware of Dr. Rice and how God had signally used him, it just sickened us. Others thought it was the cutest thing in the world. That's not the end of the story. Tragically, this young man, after he went to Bible college, he couldn't find himself. He got off into deep sin. His wife divorced him. He died tragically from a disease contracted because of his sinful, deviant lifestyle. Just be yourself to the glory of God. Thirdly, there must be an acknowledgement of God's ownership. I want you to see this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I want you to see both of these verses. You've heard me quote these verses often. Verse 6, 1 Corinthians 4. Paul said, And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. And here it is, what I want you to see. That you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. Because, boy, they were doing that in the church at Corinth. They were the party that was saying, I'm a Paul. Another party was saying, I'm of Apollos, that silver-tongued orator. And then there was a super-pious party with their placard that said, I am of Jesus. Or carnal divisions. Paul had to deal with that. He's dealing with it here. Verse 7, for who maketh thee to differ from another? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer, class? God. And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? What's the answer, class? Nothing. 
Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? Why do you boast as if thou hadst not received it? True humility is realizing that we have nothing that we did not receive. Therefore, we don't become proud over our looks, our abilities, our talents, our educational attainments, our wealth, our belongings. Contrarywise, we see that we must use those endowments as a divine stewardship to invest in the kingdom of God, to be used by God's glory to help others, or we will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means that in ourselves we are bankrupt, but in Christ we are rich. A lot of people have a false idea of humility. It's a mock humility. They're kind of like that character, if you're familiar with Charles Dickens' works. In, in David Copperfield, that's, there's that character, Uriah he, uh, Heap, I think, or Uriah Deep, maybe. Heap or Deep. But he was a heap lot in trouble, deep trouble. And he would go around reminding people that he was a very humble person. Or some of you may not be into Charles Dickens, but you're into Andy Griffith, and you know Barney Fife in that episode where he says, I'm all choked up with humbleness and humility. There's a lot of false modesty out there. In the evangelical church, there's little emphasis on true humility. There's some. Many books and sermons are out there telling us how to be happy, how to be successful. There's do-it-yourself book do-it-yourself books on just about everything, how to solve your own problems. But the root problem is often left untouched, and that is self, pride. Even when somebody does preach a sermon or write a book on humility, so often that virtue eludes them. (laughs) This is fresh on my mind. Back when we were doing every uh, three months or so, we would have a Breakout session, the men would meet down there in the chapel, ladies would meet in here, and we did some kind of men's leadership training. Remember one time the theme was humility, and I promoted a book that had just come out in 2005, written by a pastor of a flagship church of a large Protestant denomination in Maryland, headquartered in Maryland. He had just written a book on pride. That was the title, Pride. It was a really good book. I, I read it. I wanted our guys to hear it, to read it. You can imagine how flabbergasted I was six years later when he, was, he had to step down from his denomination. He was rebuked by his elders and leadership for, and I'm reading exactly the press release, for pride, deceit, sinful judgment, and hypocrisy. How elusive is this virtue of humility? Well, did Andrew Murray say, humility is the grace that when you think you've got it, you just lost it. And yet, humility does manifest itself. God's Word gives us some criteria for determining if we are growing in grace, and certainly that would include the grace of humility, so we'll start that next week. If you come back, we'll pick up where we left off. Rather than get into that, I'm just going to chop it off like link sausage. And just ask you, 
Has God in His grace enabled you to see the pride in your life? I'm serious, folks. Until we see the pride in our life, nothing's going to change. Are you beginning to see it as the cancer of your soul? Are you beginning to see that the pride in your life blinds you to your faults and to others' virtues? Oh, it has so many subtle disguises. Perhaps, and this is, may not be true of everybody, but it could be true of some, and I haven't been reading your emails, and nobody's been squealing on you to me. Perhaps when you enter a room, you have to dominate the conversation. I mean, it's all about you. You suck all the oxygen out of the room. You eat up the attention. That's pride. Maybe you just can't take correction. You defend yourself to the nth degree. If anybody even tries to correct you, you get indignant and insulted. You can't hardly speak peaceably to them after that. Or maybe you're one of those that you know it all. You have all the answers. There's one lady in the Cayman Islands, I would never tell her anything because she would say before I could get it halfway out of my mouth, yeah, I know it. <laughs> she always said, I know it. And the Bible says knowledge puffeth up. Don't be one of those that can't be taught anything. Maybe I'm speaking to someone here in this room that you imagine that you're walking with God, but it's a vain imagination. You may even think you're a spiritual giant, but you're enslaved by some besetting sin, and you are either in denial or you minimize the seriousness of your addiction. Before we go any further in the week, before we go any further in this study, will you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Or the kingdom of heaven will never be yours. Pride is the devil's own signature sin. God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you don't get this matter of poverty of spirit right and humble yourself before the Lord, you'll never mourn over your sin and repent of it. You'll never meet any of those other conditions in the rest of the Beatitudes. You will never savingly believe on Jesus because it says in John 5, verse 44, Jesus said, How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? You cannot savingly believe unless you humble yourself to confess your spiritual bankruptcy. Folks, this is kindergarten 101 in God's school. Before we go any further, Will you examine yourself to see if you meet this divine requisite? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. Those who cry out to God and say, Lord, I have nothing. I have nothing but what I've received from you. Let's pray. Father, help us to heed your command to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Until we do, you, you withhold your grace. So often, until you do, revival tarries.
until we do iniquity abounds our homes are breaking apart Satan is having a field day in the professing church and yet we stubbornly cling to our pride oh God help us to meet the very first kingdom requirement poverty of spirit in Jesus name we pray amen